This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, November 10th, 2018. Uh, we have got a great, great, great show planned for you. We have a special guest in the house, a uh, game designer who worked on the famous and infamous Halo franchise way back at the dawn of time on Halo 1 and on Halo 2. Worked, in fact, on the multiplayer components of the game, um, which is, of course, one of the huge reasons why Halo was a big seller. We are going to uh, get to discuss that this week. Um, and so hosting duties today have been turned over to Dornall. So, um, which is why you can see my logo uh, if you're watching this on YouTube and not the channel. So, uh, let me throw this to Dornal, man. What's up? Hey, how's it going, man? Uh, busy, 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 busy. I've been doing a lot of research this week, a lot of skull stuff, a lot of theorizing, building, answering a lot of fundamental questions about certain things. And then also building some game mechanics and stuff. So it's been a busy week. Yikes. Uh, I wish I could say the same for me. It's been busy in a bad way. Just uh, car in the shop life stuff. I did find some time for a nice relaxing game of Gloomhaven. Uh, that was that was pretty much the highlight of, of my week. Kill the dragon. Uh, it was more like a bunch of uh, douchebag cultists. I'm just saying that because I don't actually... I assume there's a dragon in Gloomhaven somewhere, but I've never... There is. We haven't found We haven't found him yet. But. Is it super big and tough and liable to eat you alive? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I think our guest can can help us with that. Uh, Hardy's actually my uh, my famous Gloomhaven partner of the past mm. months. That's true. I am. Hello, everybody. <laughs> I I am the famous partner, and uh, just just to make sure that we're following canon, technically it's a wyvern, John, not a dragon. Is it a wyvern? I see. Or is that pronounced wyvern? I don't know. It depends. Is it is it, is it Ryu or Ryu? I don't know. I believe it's Ryu. <laughs> yeah, man. It's good to finally have you on the show, man. Welcome. Thanks very much. It's really a pleasure to be here. I, I, so, love, I love Go ahead. I was going to say, I love this meeting of the minds because DW is here talking about game mechanics and things. And I'm like, hmm, I know a game designer who likes designing games. Oh, dear God, who? Uh, well, I had to settle for you, man. Oh, crap. no, we like uh, <laughs> Bansky, who designs games. Uh, Pixel Metal came on the show, who designs games. Um, oh, yeah, whatever happened to those guys? Uh, our co host Brian Niemeyer does uh, is designing his own role playing game. Our former co host Brian Niemeyer is designing his own role playing game. I'm sure we've had a lot of, and then we had that one guy doing the cyberpunk game who came on. Um, we had a lot of game designers. Jeffro, obviously, we had the designer of Dragon Heresy on. Um, yeah, a lot of game designers on the show. Running theme. Game design is cool, man. Off and on. That's how you pull. Show, show up at the bar, be like, hey, I'm a game designer. It's like uh, <laughs> it worked. It worked. They are, they are drowning in it. Fact. That's right. Fact. <laughs> that ever work for you? Do you ever, you know, young young women like, hey, I worked on Halo. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was married at the time when I made Halo, so no, oh, there goes the opportunity. Opportunity missed. You'd be like, hey, do you know? Uh, you familiar with Master Chief? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, no, it's it's actually funny uh, when I was working on the the Halo games. And really, for a large portion of my career, I'd meet parents, you know, because uh, I had kids, and I'd we'd, we'd meet at the soccer field and stuff like that. And the parents would be like, "Oh, hi, nice to meet you. You know, what do you do?" And I tell them, "Oh, I, 
you know, working games and, and they'd say, oh, that's interesting. You know, what did you work on? And then I'll, I will tell them some of my, the games that I worked on. And then the next time I see that person, if it's at a PTA meeting or on the soccer field or wherever it would be, they'd come up to me and they'd be like, my kid went crazy when I told them what you worked on, that they met, that I met you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of famous, but not with you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a sad kind of fame, really. I, I, I think it's pretty cool myself. So I wanted to ask a question. How long were were you with Bungie before Halo? Because um, if I can get a bit autobiographical for a second, I, I bought started buying Bungie games in the early to mid-90s. I bought uh, Halo, or but um, the, the predecessor to Halo, the Marathon series, I bought Marathon, Marathon 2, Marathon Infinity. Um, and then, so I was a big Bungie fan when they were working on Halo. There was a big lag spike for for me there. Could you guys hear me through that whole thing? Because I lost you there for a second. Oh, am I breaking up? No, uh, no, Hardy. I didn't hear you at all for the past uh, minute or two. So yeah, that was weird. Big lag spike. Sorry, guys. Um, you were asking me. You were you were right in the middle of saying that you were a big uh, Bungie fan before Halo. Yeah. Right on, man. So tell me some of the Bungie games. I know, I'm sorry. Hit me with that again. Tell me what your work you. Oh, you I played Marathon, Marathon Two, Marathon Infinity. Um, you know, I, I I never got into Pathways into Darkness. That was way before I started playing. By the time I did, graphics had improved, uh, and I also was never. It's not that I didn't like the idea of um, the idea of their fantasy real time strategy game. Is that I was so terribly bad at it. Um, my dwarven fire throwers, the guys who threw the little grenades, mm. would without fail wipe out all my troops and themselves. Yeah, you're not alone. You're not alone. Uh, myth. That was called myth. myth uh, yeah. Um, all right. I've, I've, first, I'll answer the question. Uh, I joined the team and was with Bungie for probably two and a half years before Halo. Um, and I joined specifically because Bungie had two offices at the time. Um, they had one in Chicago and one in San Jose, and I was living in San Jose. And uh, the team was looking for a lead designer to step in and help them ship a game called Oni. Yes, yes, yes. And that was me. They brought me on board, and uh, I started to kind of help shape the team and guide them towards success. Um, so anyway, so I was I was with the team for a while shipping Oni, and then we had our very successful E3 show with uh, with Halo, and Microsoft was like, "We're gonna buy you now." <laughs> People went nuts. People went nuts for that E3 show. I saw it. I watched that entire show. Yeah, it was dope. I mean, it was a cool show. It was it was uh, yeah, it was good. It was strong. And when Microsoft made up their mind that they were going to buy us, uh, they kind of reached down with their mighty hand and scooped up both offices, the one from Chicago and the one in San Jose, and relocated us all to the Pacific Northwest in one mighty swoop. So for the first time ever, all the Bungieites who had kind of been all over the place were finally in one office. So, uh, And in the process of that happening, uh, the Halo engine had to be completely reworked uh, and all of the storyline, everything that, that the, the game was originally kind of before, before we kind of moved over onto console really had to be reworked to fit onto the Xbox. And it became clear that we really couldn't stay as two and a half teams anymore. We really had to become one mega team to just get the thing done. And so our little band from San Jose kind of got folded into the Halo project overall. So let me back up for a sec. Um, I really, I want to talk about Halo, but I also want to talk about Oni. Um, right on. I still have an Oni wallpaper um, in on my computer, just saved, because I love the design of the character. And in fact, I had to, I don't know, it was saved in some weird format that made it really hard to convert. And it's taken me like, 10 years of thinking about it every couple of years to convert it. But uh, so that, I mean, I knew about Oni from the beginning and I never had a chance to play it because by the time I, I went without a computer for a couple of years there. And so by the time I went back to go get Oni, it was gone. It had vanished. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I always thought it sounded like a fascinating game, a game like I always wanted to play. And some of the design details, they were talking about how they had actual architectures, architects come in and design buildings so that the levels would feel real and not just a long you know, series of artificial corridors. I thought that was fascinating. And I never understood quite why it disappeared the way it did. Uh, the... Okay, so here, if you do, you want the whole spiel on this? You want the the actual full answer? Sure, why not? I mean, um, the because uh, I don't want to I don't want to monopolize all your time with this, but but let me put it this way: um, Bungie spun up the San Jose studio around a group of talented people that they they really set their cap to hire away from Apple, and basically gave them kind of carte blanche to do whatever they wanted. And so for, you know, quite a long time, that studio was kind of that the, the San Jose studio of Bungie was really wandering in the woods with a bunch of talented people who had no idea how to take what they were working on and turn it into a video game. Okay. And so there was a slick animation system. There was a lot of interesting character design. There were a bunch of architecturally correct buildings uh, that these, they'd hired a few architects away from, you know, kind of the whatever the, I don't know what architecture, I guess, or whatever building industry uh, to, to make these spaces for them. But they had no idea how to take all those disparate elements and turn it into an, a game that you could play. And that's why they hired me. Um, they, and so I came in there and kind of was looking at all those different elements. The real answer about the quote unquote realistic architectural spaces was, I remember sitting down with, the, with the, one of the architects at the time and I was looking at the space, one of the spaces that he designed. And he's like, well, look here. See, this is, you know, this is the space that I've made. It's a futuristic uh, office building. And he's like, these are the meeting rooms. And you'll see here, you know, these are the restrooms. And this is kind of the common areas. And this is the flow pattern back and forth to the elevators. And I looked at him. Are, are we allowed to swear on Geek Gab? Is that a thing? Uh, this is a question from a meta question for you two. We, we usually try to keep it uh, family friendly. Right on. Okay. Well, then I looked at him and I said, what the heck are these all for? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, the bathrooms, what are those for? And he looks at me dead serious. And he goes, well, I mean, people get really uncomfortable if they can't reach a restroom. You know, it's not easily accessible. And I said, no, you don't understand. Why is it in your game? I mean, can you run in there and like smash the toilets? Uh, you know, can you take an enemy's head and shove it in there and drown them? And he's looking at them and he goes, well, no, it's just part of the floor plan. And that was the point at which I was like, okay, all this stuff has got to go. <laughs> this is all got to go. Uh, because we were pushing huge poly counts for, for elements uh, that had been included in these quote unquote real ar architectural designs that had nothing to do with the, the level um, for gameplay. The thing to remember about, about levels in games is that they're just set decoration. They're just window dressing. They are not real in any sense. Even big spaces or open world spaces are still very carefully designed to facilitate the gameplay uh, systems in the game. And so the final version of Oni that shipped, we took a lot of those architectural elements, but I had to kind of just cannibalize them to turn them into set dressing for the action components of the gameplay. Right. Um, so anyway, that's the, that's the long answer to whatever happened to architectural layouts. And you notice that nobody ever, no one, no one since then has ever gone back to that as a, as a concept and tried to fold that into games. And that's because it, it doesn't really work. Well, and, and it, it, not just uh, when you're actually rendering it, does it bog down your engine with a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't need to be rendered. Right. But, uh, especially at the time, I mean, um, we were dealing with what? Uh, one terabyte hard drives, or one, excuse me, one gigabyte hard drives at the max. I mean, mm -hmm. I bought at around that same period of time had a, had a, I think a 1.5 uh, gigabyte hard drive and I increased it to three and that was like a big deal for me. Um, and, and so when you're trying to store all the vertex information and all of the texture information um, for a huge piece of architecture that you don't need 95% of it, that's just a waste of resources. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's exactly what we had. 
I mean, we had beautiful atriums and really fancy door spaces and meeting rooms and all this other kind of stuff that was, we literally was just a giant waste of, of, of resources to create these architecturally correct buildings. And to be frank, uh, one of the architects, when we got in there and I started to say, okay, well, we're going to have to rip this out and move this around, put this here and there. He really kind of fell on his sword at that point and, and, and went to the kind of higher ups at Bungie and said, look, it's either him or me. And at that point, uh, given that the project had been wandering in the desert for a couple of years and had never actually created a game, they said, well, sorry, partner, but it's going to be him. And so he left the company and I believe he moved to Australia, but I'm not certain. He, he, he went far, far away. Or he was, it, it, did he move or was he exiled? I can't say. No, that, that, <laughs> that's that's too bad. I mean, he, he put a lot. Of, he put his heart and soul into it, and, and and it took it took you to tell him, look, man, what you're doing is is really cool, but it's not a game. Exactly, and and that's the thing is that you know games and game development. It's it's constantly a learning process. If if you ever meet someone who goes, oh, yeah, I'd, I have all the answers they're full of it. I mean, that's really not true. You constantly, you know, just the, the evolving technology, the evolution of the art form itself and it, the interactive medium, you have to constantly keep an open mind to, okay, maybe this worked in the past, but what's new, what's different, what's changing, and how do I have to do things differently? That's part of the challenge of it. And unfortunately for him, you know, he, he wanted to make sort of futuristic, architecturally correct buildings and wasn't that interested in learning how to actually build game spaces. And that's where he fell off the train. And that's, you know, that happens. That's too bad. So um, you, get, you get Oni stitched together into something that's playable and shippable. Um, and people are all excited. If I remember correctly, and you have to forgive me um, if I misremember this, they have a new um, publisher at the time that was created with a coalition of companies. They called it Gathering of Developers. Do I have that? Am, am I remembering that correctly? This is what, 20 years ago, right? So what, what happened was uh, we were working with, uh, I think it was Dice, actually, was the company, the publisher on Oni. And... Uh, what it what it the the whole sequence of events was um, kind of full dirty laundry exposure here. Uh, the the tech people uh, on Myth Two, I believe it was, made a massive mistake, and they actually in the uninstall feature, they they legendarily kind of put the thing in that would go back and erase everything on your root drive when they shipped the game. So. <laughs> so Bungie sank a lot of money into starting the studio in San Jose. Then they lost a lot of money on a huge recall of product on Myth 2. So they had to recall the product and reissue all the product and things like that. Um, and this game had kind of been wandering in the, in the, in the woods uh, or the desert, I guess is the way I said it before, for quite a long time. They had hired some these talented people and sort of said, make whatever you want. And they, they were using their talent, but not necessarily stitching it together into a game. So Bungie needed external funding. They, they had to get another source to kind of stay in business. And they turned to Take Two, which was the, uh, Take Two was the, the publisher. And I, I know I said Dice before, but it was, it was Take Two. And um, so Take Two was like, okay, great. You know, you're, you'll, we'll keep you in business. Um, and, you know, you'll ship Bungie for us. Well, then we had our massive successful show of Halo at E3. And when that happened, uh, the, the bosses of Bungie kind of went back to Take-Two and said, look, they, they want to buy us. And Take-Two said, look, we've been counting on Bungie to be our you know, big partner to help us with, you know, with, with the games that you're going to release, blah, blah, blah. I'll tell you what, we'll let you go. You know, we'll we'll we won't block the sale because they they had already bought a vested interest in the company. They, they they didn't have to let us go, but they said we will let you go if you give us all the IP that includes Oni and Myth and all the rest of that type of stuff. Everything but Halo, and I think Marathon. I don't know if if Jason Jones kind of forced them to let him keep the rights to Marathon or not. I, I'm honestly not certain. Um, 
but but anyway, give them basically all, all the IP that that um, that Bungie owned, and they the other stipulation was we had to ship Oni in time for them to hit their quarterly profits. They're like, look, you know, the game is supposed to come out, you can't miss it, you can't slip it, otherwise we're going to block the sale to Microsoft, which basically left our team in this really tough spot of ship or die was kind of the thing. People were selling their houses in Chicago and moving to the Pacific Northwest while we were working away in San Jose. And so it just became a question of how do we get a game finished and get it out the door, you know, of a quality level where we're proud of it. It, it, it matches the quality that the publisher is expecting and they're not going to give us a lot of static about, you know, the game that goes out the door. So, um, and it was the, the, the thing is, if we'd had, I don't know, a whole lot more time to kind of, as the game come together and just polish it and give it more love and make it more feature rich and really work on the art and stuff like that, we probably could have started to try to live up to the hype that had been built up for the game, you know, kind of in the, in the years when it was under development and Bungie fans were really anticipating it. As it is, what we shipped was a very good game it was very playable and it was really based on you know kind of solid fundamental mechanics this is just my opinion but i i think this is this was a bear up um it was very playable it was very fun what it wasn't was all the stuff that had been hyped up to that point you know it wasn't realistic spaces and it wasn't a cinematic experience that you know whatever all the all this other kind of stuff that that bungie had spent time hyping um, it was a very playable game. It was a solid action game. It integrated shooting and fighting in a really good way. The story held together. It kind of made sense. Uh, our our protagonist was cool, but it wasn't it wasn't what the hype had been up to that point. And you know, if we if circumstances had been different and we shipped the first one and it was a success, and then we kind of went back and tried to gather up some of the hype elements and really make them into the second edition of the game or second version. Um, it maybe we could have lived up to some of the hype that Bungie had already kind of put out there in the world. But as it was, it was a solid action game um, that was underwhelming in some way. <laughs> you know, the art, people would look at the art and they'd be like, why are these environments so simple? Well, it was because they were, they started out life as beautifully rendered architectural environments and I had to strip them down and turn them into set dressing, you know, um, Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm not, I don't make any excuses. I absolutely stand by the product. I, if... Oh, no. I think we had a, we had a lag spike. Yeah, we had another, we had another lag hiccup. But still, that sounds, uh, uh, that's an interesting bit of history there. Depending what it was going to be. And circumstances forced us to make a lot of hard choices about getting it out the door. Okay, oh. I'll, stop, I'll stop blathering about that now. Blah, blah. <laughs> I, I think I think your internet gave up. They're like, oh my god, they're right. yeah. uh, no, seriously, that was uh that was really cool. Um you said something in there that really um that sticks in my mind and or my craw. Uh you, you use the phrase cinematic experience. <laughs> um and, and so and we, we talk a lot about this. We talk about uh, tabletop role playing as well. And and we and Hardy and I have very different tastes, but um, you do strike me as more of a level designer and more of a game designer. So so, what how what do you feel about cinematic experiences? Are they are they part of games you like to design or or what? Well, so my all right. So my my approach to that uh, for kind of from a, a meta perspective as far as game design is that story is. You can't think of story or cinematic experiences um, as that is not interactive. Okay, a story is. <sighs> this is normal for the gig, Gab. Not recently. We've been doing really good recently. Yeah, I feel bad because now he's going to say all this stuff over again. Dude, this sucks. <laughs> Great show, got a fascinating guest. Talk about some cool stuff, and the internet craps out on us because, of course, it does. <laughs> it's too what bad. The hell, internet! I mean, but I mean, it's a problem. You you thought that there was too much interesting content on <laughs> you, 
There wasn't enough boring stuff, and so the internet just decided to say, hey, that's it. We have passed the quota for interesting and cool stuff today. Everything here on out is going to be boring, and if you insist on creating something interesting, we're going to shut it down. What's the deal? Wait, what? I'm sorry, you lost me. Well, you your audio cut out after you, you said the word story, so we pretty much missed the second half of that. Oh, oh, okay, I see. Um, all right, well, I'll keep it short because I don't know why the audio crept out on you, but, but all I was saying was that don't think about it as story. Think about it as dramatic context. If you want to tell somebody a story, you don't get to make any choices as you're hearing about what's happening in the story. But if you set dramatic context, then it adds a sense of excitement and immersion, um, and then the person can make choices. So for example, if I tell you how you escape from a burning building, you can hear the story. But if I tell you you're inside a burning building, you can't reach, you know, you, you, you can't run down the escape stairwells uh, and the doors are blocked. The only way out is the windows. What do you do? Then you have a context and you could start making choices about, all right, how are you going to get through the window? If you're going to smash it, blah, blah, blah. So story is a, it's, it's a dead end concept. Uh, think of it as dramatic context instead. And so here's something else. Here, here's a different idea. People play games because they have goals, right? Goal in Monopoly is to drive everybody else into bankruptcy. Um, there are different goals for games that people largely set for themselves or that they accept in the context of playing the game. And dramatic events, events dealing with characters and situations and things going on, on the play, around the player that they don't have direct control over, what they do is, in addition to whatever goals the player has set, they add goals, they add impetus they had a drive so that the player is more invested in playing through a section of the game uh story quote unquote story all it is is making your game more interesting by giving the player goals in addition to whatever they want uh, whatever they're doing whatever they choose to have goals and you have to kind of sell that subtly but that's what that's all that story is getting players to invest more emotionally in the outcome or success of a game by giving them reasons to care more about what's going on in the game other than just uh, the mere goals they set to try and get through a level quicker, get through a level without dying, get through a level with only using your fists. Other than those kind of goals, you give them something else to invest in. Are you, are you asking me if I agree with that or? No, that's just a, that's just a thought I had. Hmm. I, you know, that reminds me of, uh, this actually translates to tabletop games too. Um, Hardy, and I, Hardy and I go back and forth a lot about story and uh, let's call it dramatic context in, in our tabletop games and, and role-playing games. Uh, I, one, of the, one of the big complaints I have about modern Dungeons and Dragons, for example, uh, especially with all the actual play videos, like uh, the, the shows like Critical Role and things, um, a lot of people get the wrong impression that it is about telling a story. Uh, you really have to you have to turn their minds around and and use the perspective that you use the game to tell a story, not the other way around. The story is told by the gameplay, not a a, a game that makes a story. If that makes sense. Well, so to to go back to the I guess the the previous point, and as a segue into what you're saying, John, like when Jason's saying it gives you an additional goal, I think it's important to sort of start from the perspective that people play games to have fun. Um, and then you, you approach a game and say, okay, I, I want to have fun. The game then kind of posits a bunch of rules that put you put challenges that are set up in front of you. So acquiring story can be one of the challenges, right? Or putting everybody out, of business and monopoly can be one of the challenges or building your airline in airlines Europe so that it's, you know, it's the most powerful and most, you know, widespread airline. Those are all different goals. Um, so when, when you're approaching the game, you have to kind of decide for yourself. Yeah. Those goals are interesting to me. Those seem fun. And that's why I like Gloomhaven and I hate Scythe is that, 
the goal of cooperating with my friends to overcome a bunch of monsters and uncover a little bit more story and grow the power of my characters is interesting, but I want to do it cooperatively. The idea for me, the goal of sitting around and beating my friends by creating a more, you know, uh, efficient economic engine and then thereby squeezing them off the map isn't really interesting at all. The cooperative aspect is what holds interest for me. So to start by assuming, okay, the player wants to have fun. Now we're going to set up a bunch of constraints around that kind of challenges for them to try to overcome. Some of it could be story. Some of it could just be pure mechanics, whatever that is. It's always important to start with that, you know, like, all right, what, 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 is, what does the player want to do to have fun? So then it goes to your question about role-playing or, or, or tabletop RPGs. Some people do want to have those kind of, you know, the, the, that cinematic experience. They want to play the dramatic context. They want to be Luke Skywalker who's confronting Darth Vader. Some people just want to play against the tough tactical, you know, rules of how much gold can I carry and, you know, how many supplies do I have and can I actually survive to make money, you know, in a dungeon by, by removing the dungeon regardless of dramatic context. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the story is. The story is I'm going to get paid when I survive this, you know, nightmarish excursion into the underdark. And so you got to be clear about the goals, like how you want to have fun up front. And they're both valid. They're all valid. It's just interesting how people's tastes differ. That's true. And, and that I had an, another odd thought during that because you made me realize that when you accept that as your premise, when you go out to make a game and you ask, you know, I, I, how do I make this game fun? You, you have an audience in mind. You may not explicitly have an audience in mind, but you, you know the type of person that is you're making this for. When you sit down to make a Halo or a Gloomhaven, you know the type of person that you're that, that is going to want to sit down and play this game. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for me, we, we started to have a conversation in the green room before we went on air. There was some question about kind of my design philosophy. Um, my approach very often when it comes to game design questions or game balance questions is I like to put my 14-year-old kid hat on my head. Now, I ain't 14. <laughs> I haven't been 14 for a very long time. But I try to put a, a kind of a let me imagine that I'm a player and I'm going to experience whatever it is that's going to go into the game as a player. Let me, you know, just imagine that I'm experiencing a set of constraints or a set of game mechanics or even a bit of story or something like that. Let me, uh, let me try to experience that and see how I feel about it from that kind of place where I'm impatient. I'm, only looking for things that are, you know, very satisfying to me or interesting to me or engaging. And any, my friend Scott Rogers is a longtime game designer. Who One of his sort of principles is, you know, you build a game and then you spend time removing everything that isn't fun and then you ship it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an interesting way to approach it. It's that same idea of what, what, what is the consumer going to hate? You know, what, is, what are they not going to like? And absolutely, putting yourself in the mindset of, well, what what is my audience, what do they hate and what do they like and how do I satisfy that is a, it's a huge challenge. And that's, I think, a big part of being successful. I've been uh, looking at this last week, um, a history of EVE Online. Um, and you really, you drill down into what happened and how it happened in OLSEC and all the the way the various factions interacted. Um, when you first look at it at a really superficial level, it looks like this grand scope, this grand scoop of like pseudo history. But if you actually drill down just a tiny bit deeper, you realize that everything happened that happens in Nullsec that people have heard about that massive battle with like that lost like three hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff, whatever. That it is all driven by game mechanics but also the physical constraints of the hardware and the network and things like that and it's really fascinating how it's just 
barely underneath the surface that the setup of the game is what drives how those alliances function and that if you added some other features to the game, all of that would change dramatically. Absolutely. Uh, my, I, th I think that's one of the most fascinating things about uh, multiplayer communities and games and, and massively multiplayer games, even more so, you know, kind of to the, to the nth degree. My experience with that happened when I used to play Dark Age of Camelot a long time ago. Uh, kind of an old school MMO. And it had three different competing kingdoms. There was a Celtic kingdom, a kind of an Arthurian Britain kingdom, and then a Viking kingdom. And you could go to one of those kingdoms, level up your character. And then when you hit level 50, you would then go and fight against the other kingdoms in open warfare in these, you know, kind of grand massive battles, uh, which were, you know, if you were to look at them now, <laughs> they were they were just terrible. I mean, the the art was so ghetto, and the the you know, the game mechanics and the control mechanics were just awful. But what I found the most fascinating about that game was that the way that they combined mechanics changed the culture quite a bit from realm to realm. In the Viking realm, for example, there was one class called the Healer. And the healers had AOE, what they call spread heals. So they had these massive heals that could heal, you know, everybody at once for a whole lot of damage. They had single target heals that could bring you back from the dead and kind of restore you into combat. So they they had two specs basically. They had two ways that they could kind of create their 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 skills. So they had the the sort of the eight the the big healing and buffs and stuff like or not buffs but you know big heals and and uh, you know they could remove poison and status effects and things like that, or they could go crowd control. So they had these incredibly powerful spells that they could cast that would stop the entire enemy army in their tracks and you know force them to pause for a couple of seconds. Well, because that one class had life or death power over all the Vikings and trolls and kobolds, when the healer arrived on the battlefield, they just started to issue orders and all the monsters and Vikings and berserkers and, you know, and trolls and kobolds, you just fall in line and do whatever the healer said. You didn't ask any dumb questions like, why do I have to do what you say? Because they held the power of the, you know, your life in their hands on the battlefield. But what was interesting is that in the Arthurian kingdom, everybody had a little bit of their own self-healing. Everybody had their own self-buffs and could kind of break status effects on their own because every because they were trying to recreate that idea of, you know, you get to be a fantasy, like you can be Friar Tuck, or you could be Sir Lancelot, or you could be uh, Morgan Le Fay. And so everybody had enough to be kind of strong on their own. It wasn't that the whole, you know, kind of all the power for healing or, uh, or sorry, or crowd control wasn't uh, consolidated in the hands of one class. And so Organizing the Knights of Camelot for war was incredibly difficult. <laughs> like I would go and, you know, I'd walk out onto the level fifty battlefield, you know, with the with the uh, with the people from from Camelot. And they just nobody was listening. Everybody was running around like, follow me. Let's go over this hill. Let's do this, that, and the other. As opposed to the Vikings, man, when the healer walked on the battlefield, it started issuing orders. You just you just did what they said. <laughs> like you got it, and. The only difference really was the fact that it was how the game mechanics were organized. And I found that so fascinating. That's, that's incredible. It was really cool. Uh, it's, it's one of the things that I personally like as uh, when I, cause I, you know, I'm a software developer by profession. I don't do games, but uh, when I'm, when I'm designing systems, I, I appreciate a well-designed system is something that generates the behavior and the effects that you want, you know, without forcing it, without orders or anything like that. Just it's, it's you start with a, with a state and when you add people to it, what happens? What do they do? And, and that is one of the most interesting things 
about any system, not just not just MMOs. I, I find that absolutely fascinating. It, it absolutely, I agree. It is it is fascinating, and it's interesting to to also see going back to um, Jason's original point about about Eve Online, the fact that when a when a when one of these cultures kind of rises up around a product or you know a piece of software. Um, and then stabilizes, you start to see how the, you know, Oh, there we go. Good. In ways they start to rely on it. They start to interact with it. They start to kind of work around the limitations in different ways. Um, almost regardless of what you're doing as a developer, you, you can try to get in front of that a little bit and shape the behavior, but sometimes you know, the cultures will just do what they're going to do. And it, it almost doesn't, I mean, it, you almost can't control it because it's a little bit of like a runaway train. And one example that I would point to is um, the red versus blue, uh, you know, machinima videos that those guys used to make kind of making fun of Halo multiplayer. <laughs> they didn't really have any, good tools for doing that. And yet they still, because they were kind of really committed to the idea, they were really committed to the culture. They found ways of creating the, the stories that they wanted to create even, you know, within the limitations of the software itself. So, you know, Eve, Eve online is, is a really, I don't know. It's, it's very interesting that it's, it's an MMO that has grown up, and it still persists to this day, um, and the people are still out there playing. When so many other MMOs that probably had, I don't know, arguably a bigger budget or whatever, have kind of come and gone. So it's interesting to see the ones that you know that come alive and stay and stay around, even if they're not necessarily the the next new hotness or the biggest possible thing that's out there. Um, definitely have something special there. I, I want to talk about E for just a second, then we can jump into Halo. Um, one of the interesting things that happens around 2005, 2006 in Eve is that the original culture of the game, which is very much heavily based around role-playing, based around um, people getting into these fictional roles of playing you know, pilots and miners and dictators and stuff, to where they were doing a bunch of things that were suboptimal as far as uh, gathering money and gathering materials and manufacturing things and moving up to bigger ships. So in terms of the actual game mechanics, they were deliberately going against it because they had this other goal of role-playing. And then um, when Goon Swarm comes in, and Band of Brothers gets destroyed, you see this big, huge shift from people role-playing about being individuals in this universe to people playing to defeat their enemies in very cutthroat manner and learning and developing all of these tools of spies and betrayal and sneak attacks and all of that that is really really fascinating because the entire culture of the game over the course of less than a year gets completely swapped out and at the same time and the reason why it happens is a lot of the old powers that grew powerful under the old culture got wiped out and so that's when you had the brand new era of Eve. And it's just interesting that they pretty much wholesale replaced the culture and replaced a lot of prominent players during that time. The uh, There's a really interesting set of kind of sociological discussions that I follow right now that are going on in the intellectual dark web about the idea of collective intelligences. The idea that a, a group can rise up and you know, through the tools of the internet, through chat rooms and through a bunch of different shared systems, for example, the, you know, the tools inside of Eve form a collective intelligence that then, you know, can act in the real world in some kind of meaningful way. Um, the Eve people are, they started out acting in game, but for sure, the real world spying ops and all the rest of that type of stuff is an example of, in my opinion, collective intelligence that kind of has spread from online into the real world space. And you see that with the QAnon people and, uh, and a lot of the kind of stuff that's happening online is these collective intelligences form 
uh, around, you know, ideas that are important and people, yeah, they, not only do they, they kind of circle the, the concept itself, but they evolve. They, you know, they, when, when they're kind of put under pressure or they, or they're attacked or they're challenged or whatever, um, the nature of the culture and the tools that they have evolve as well. And so I, I would make the case that what that's what you're seeing with, with Eve and the culture in Eve is you're kind of seeing the rise of these CIs, these collective intelligences of players who are becoming more aware of, oh, I have these different tools and, you know, real world spying and all the rest of that type of stuff, um, whatever, whatever they're, they're doing. And it's, it's carried out in so many different corners on the internet. It's really interesting. And, and I, I'm just going to say again, there's one last thing. Um, CCP, the developers of EVE Online, they really pushed the emergence of factions and the emergence of alliances and then coalitions because they kept on introducing new ship types that were larger and more powerful that if you're going to engage in war, you have to have them. But they were so expensive in terms of not money, but actually physically gathering minerals and bringing them back and refining them and producing components that go into making up the ship. The introduction of capital ships drove the emergence of alliances because you had to have more players working together to produce these ships and that um, dynamic increased even more so with the introduction of titans because that was just a monumental uh, monumental task and so they themselves drove the emergence of alliances and mega alliances in the game because they introduced simply with the introduction of new uh, ship types very fascinating yeah, well, I remember attending a GDC one year, an interesting GDC talk, and they were talking about um, the, the the title of the talk, and this is funny because it sort of predated the, the ubiquitous rise of the business model, but it was about free the free-to-play business model. And the, I think the title of the talk was essentially like, free-to-play, what are you, crazy? <laughs> you know, like, why, why are you giving it away for free? And what those developers were explaining at the time. And again, the, you know, they, the, 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 the market has proven the, the, how powerful this particular business model is, but what they were basically saying was that no matter if, once you have a successful game, if you have a successful game, you've got players who are what they call whales. And you've probably heard this term before. Yeah. People who are willing to invest just unbelievable time and resources in the game and it was really interesting to me they had a panel of these people who put these free-to-play game models up there and uh the moderator said okay well for those of you in the audience who don't believe that the free-to-play model can be effective i'm just going to do a little kind of non-scientific poll and he said for all of you developers with the free-to-play business model how many of you have players who spend $10 a month on your game and they all raised their hand. And then he said, how about $20 a month? They all raised their hand. He said, let's make it a little more interesting. $50 a month. They all raised their hand. How about a hundred? They all raised their hand. He said, how many of you have $500 a month or more? They all raised their hand. <laughs> so it was like, yeah. And it's and so I guess my point is that when you when you when you have one of these successful models and it forms a kind of a living culture, the capacity for kind of player investment is just staggeringly vast. It's just amazing how much time and energy and effort people will put in once they I mean if they if they if it's pushing their buttons if it's really satisfying for them it's just staggering how much time and energy they'll they'll put in to these you know to these things um and it's also take that same parallel and put that into collective intelligences that are formed around other things political things or economic things or whatever um and it gives you an idea i mean at least for me it's kind of the sobering idea that like no matter what area you're interested in these days, if all you're going to do is dabble, you know, there are going to be people out there who just will work you under the table, <laughs> no matter what, no matter what it is you're interested in. So anyway, but yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff. Absolutely fascinating. 
That's kind of amazing. I think we saw uh, what what you're calling in collective intelligence is. I think we saw them, uh, one or two of them realized that they could actually affect important things in the real world, which is also an, a really fascinating thing. Mm -hmm. I, I would argue, ar I would argue one of those things was Gamergate, which is a sort of a really weird uh, thing. I think Daddy Warpig could probably tell us a lot more about Gamergate than, uh, than we all know. But the idea is that people realized that something was happening in the real world. They could collectively do something about it and not in sort of the cheesy clean up your community sort of action, you know, in the, in the sort of make a, a small ripple in, uh, of change in culture. Mm -hmm. And that was just people working together, no leaders, no anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so as long as we still have the internet, the world is going to continue to get stranger and stranger. I, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. I hope not. I actually, I, all right, sorry, this is a very metaphysical point, but my, my thought about this is that what, what we're seeing right now is for the first time in human history, we now have a set of tools that enable us to think and react to events in darn near real time. Um, and so I kind of think about the internet as almost like the nervous system for the human experience. It's like, imagine that we're just a newborn kind of entity and that's humanity as a whole. And pretty much all we can do right now is feel pain and cry. You know, like that's kind of all we can do. We can barely, we can't really react to things all that well. We can experience things, but we haven't really developed the tools yet to, uh, I don't know, to process things in a holistic way or react to things in a holistic way. But in my humble opinion, as a culture and as a species, it's important for us to figure out how to do that. Um, and I, I, I don't know, as, as the internet and as our society, human society, as our species kind of continues to evolve now that we have this I don't know, this sort of digital nervous system connecting us all. I honestly hope that we we kind of get past the point at which we realize that we're, you know, we seem different and we start evolving to a place where we realize that we have a lot of commonality and we have, we start to develop some tools that are better for communication and, and focusing more on, you know, kind of, I don't know, how we react to things as a, as a civil, as a species more than, whatever, but that's just my, that's my meta point. Well, that's, um, that's kind of interesting. And, and I don't think I necessarily agree with your, uh, with your conclusion or your projection, but let me make sure I understand where you're coming from. If, if we use an individual as a metaphor, you know, we've got a nervous system, which you, you did use it as a metaphor mm -hmm. we've got a nervous system where if, if there's a, there's a, something wrong with the body, then we'll send a pain signal and maybe we'll send antibodies and something like that. So we can use that as a metaphor for our internet connected society where um, let's say there's a tsunami in the Pacific. Well, we can mobilize resources to help repair the damage and undo that and help those people there. So uh, you can view the world and our society uh, as an organism in metaphor. You, you think that it's possible that uh, humanity would become an organism in fact, is that what you're thinking? No, what I mean is imagine that the human organism right now is really it all it can really do is is react kind of like a baby reacts to its environment. So the human organism feels the pain of a tsunami, you know, in the South Pacific. It's localized pain, right? It it's only affecting a part of the body and the baby's ability to react to that is limited to it, it's very limited. Like it can't, the baby, let's imagine it's literally just sort of an infant that's laying there. Like it can feel pain. It could kind of move its legs around, right? It could cry. It could do some stuff to kind of react to pain. And imagine humanity, the, you know, the species is this massive, massive organism, but that we only right now have the ability to react to a tsunami or to uh, hunger or homelessness or war or, 
you know, or, or bigotry or whatever, all the rest of that type of thing, kind of like a baby. But someday, I hope that our species will evolve the tools to be able to really react like a, like a child or even an adult. I mean, and, and that's the point at which I imagine we will see, you know, just a completely different form of human society, completely different forms of human interaction, because we will understand not just how to act locally, but also globally and, and take inputs from people that are, you know, that aren't just local to the situation. I take the situation in Puerto Rico, for example, that's a pain point, right? And there are some people that are experiencing on the giant, you know, whatever the, the body of the, <laughs> the baby of humanity, but the baby is not doing much about it. Like it's kind of thrashing a little bit and kicking and crying. And I'm not suggesting that the people in Puerto Rico are babies. You understand I'm just trying to draw out the metaphor. Um, that the body itself is not doing anything. But if, if, if humanity had its adult capabilities, it could deal with pain. It could deal with those things in just a really profoundly powerful way. Imagine all of, all of our species, all of humanity able to identify uh, and categorize and prioritize pain points and deal with them like what couldn't we do if the entire species became this you know kind of we were actualized as this massive kind of collective entity and again i'm not talking about we're all a hive mind i'm just saying if our if we get to the point at which this digital nervous system that we've built enables us to react in a way that is not just localized but instead is really kind of out across the entire organism I mean, it, the, the universe itself is not beyond our grasp. That's my, that's my crazy science fiction thought for you for today. Well, I, I was just about to say, I, I'm looking forward to you expanding on what you think that would look like in a science fiction novel. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it would be cool. I, the thing is, you know, you, I, you, you, a little bit earlier, you sort of attributed the idea of collective intelligence. You said, well, that's your term. It's not my term. Remember, this is coming off the intellectual dark web. There's way smarter people than me that are thinking about this and talking about, it. I mean, like so smart that I just, I look like a big old dummy, <laughs> but, but I like to listen to what they're talking about and pay as much attention as I can. But yeah, maybe I could write some speculative fiction about that. It might be interesting. You should do that. You should okay. Do that. All right. It's on. It's on brother. You got Fantastic. it. Fantastic. Um, we're, uh, we usually, we usually stop after an hour, but, uh, but that's not a hard and fast rule. Do you, uh, do you still want to talk about Halo multiplayer? Who, me? Yeah. Oh, good God, no. <laughs> Fantastic. That sounds good. Why don't we, why don't we hit the Halo multiplayer thing next time? If, if yeah. I, that is presuming I'm invited back, I, I don't know. Of, of course. Yes. You've done it. You've put, you've put us on the spot on air. Uh, yeah. We'd, we'd love to have you back on. Awesome. Um, hey, DW. Yes. I'm still here. Technically breathing. Uh, we, we, uh, we, we, uh, we didn't really get many questions in the chat. Just a couple of people hanging out and saying hi. Uh, do you have anything else you want to ask Cardi or, or you want to add? No, I think, uh, I think we're good. Uh, it's a great show. We talked about a lot of interesting things. Um, there was some stuff uh, that I might have wanted to talk about more in depth, but it wasn't really stuff that was central to the discussion or important about it. But, yeah, we covered, all the, covered a bunch of interesting stuff, so I'm glad people showed up to listen live. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, very much appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. This was really fun to gag with, gab with some geeks about some geeky stuff. I love it. Yeah, oh, that was a lot of fun as usual. So uh, uh, thanks a lot for, for coming on. Thanks to the chat for okay. hanging out with us. Yeah, thanks for the invite, guys. And hopefully we get to do it again. All right, DW, can you take us out? Sure. Um, this is Geek Gab, folks. We're here about every Saturday about the same time. You can catch us on YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. You can uh, catch this show and all the other myriad of previous shows that we have made for you. Um, also, you can catch us on, if YouTube is not your thing, or if you're on a portable device, you can catch us on the Google Play Store, on the iTunes Store, and on SoundCloud.com. 
subscribe to the podcast, download the show to the mobile device of your choice, and uh, you can listen to everything that went on live. Thank everybody who came to the uh, live show and participated uh, in the very, very, for this show, abbreviated discussion, kind of surprising today. Um, and we thank, of course, everyone who is listening to this show later. Folks, we, your hosts, are checking out for today. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.